I uh, thought when I decided to do a series on music that it would be a relatively easy series. I was a church musician for many years, a, a musician outside the church uh, as well, and uh, said, I can, I can do this in my sleep. And then uh, some of the family issues we've been dealing with, I didn't realize I was going to have to do it without sleep. So <laughs> it's not the same. <laughs> but uh, uh, the series has been uh, uh, somewhat going in the direction that I'd hoped it would. Uh, we, have, we have talked about this series, The Origins of Music in the Scriptures, Formal Worship in the Song of Moses at the Exodus, and we've looked at the types of instruments uh, that the scripture talks about, percussion, wind, and the string instruments, but that they are supplemental to the human voice. We've looked at the typology that Paul uses of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and kind of indicated that psalms are the singing of scripture itself, the hymns are the declarations of God's acts uh, and character, and that the spiritual songs are really kind of folk and personal songs uh, of testimony and encouragement that we use to minister to one another. I'm going to talk more about those uh, a little later in the series. Uh, we looked at our hymnal, its history and its application to liturgy, particularly the liturgy of the Disciple Center. And last week we looked at the components of sacred music, the direction that is, is it to us, is it to God, who are we singing to, what is the function, is it a call to worship, is it a prayer, what, what are we doing in that context. Uh, what is the content of the lyrics? Um, uh, and while last week I wanted to do that with the musical accompaniment, uh, just had to read through it, but uh, those words work well as poetry as well uh, in that context. And then the style. And I have um, much more to talk about in the style, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about that today, but more uh, later. Uh, today I want to talk about the idea of sacred music. What makes music sacred? And how is it different from common music? When I was growing up, uh, TV was a relatively new thing. Radio had been the dominant media. TV was beginning to uh, uh, emerge and uh, families were beginning to buy TVs that were a bit, little bigger than the pulpit here with a screen about this big that was round and just a few channels. Um, and there were uh, programs that were done by musicians. Uh, recording of music had happened with the uh, 78s, and 45s were now becoming popular, and albums were coming out that were 33, and your, your uh, record player had all of those different speeds on it. Even one for talking, 16, which I used to put a flashlight on a, uh, a uh, record player uh, high up in my room, put a flashlight on it, put it on the 16, and pretend my room was Alcatraz with the, the light flashing around, you know, uh, doing that, you know. Uh, it's the kind of childhood I had. I was fascinated by Alcatraz and that, that light that flashes as you go across the bridge. Um, uh, one of the issues of being born in Northern California. <laughs> uh, but the, uh, uh, the idea of music was uh, 
a separation between church music or sacred music and popular music or cultural music, if you will. Uh, Now, it wasn't that these things were completely isolated, but they were understood as being distinct categories. So, for example, there were were, uh, songs, there were uh, programs by people like Tennessee Ernie Ford and other singers, Andy Williams, those kind of people. And what they would do is they would have a half-hour show. And at some point in that show, uh, the lights would be dimmed. There might be a candle or there might be a Bible. And they would sing a sacred song. They would sing a, uh, a hymn song. Every once in a while, in the popular charts, a song that was a little more religious would, uh, would become popular. Uh, but it was not generally uh, the idea that you would just intersperse the music uh, in that sense. So I want to talk about a sacred music because I think we've lost a lot of that sense. And I want to I bring back a little bit of the understanding of that. So what is the meaning of sacred? Well, when we use the word sacred, we're actually drawing from the Latin language. The, the word is sanctus. Um, where we use our word sanctification. Uh, And it's used to translate the Hebrew word kodesh or kadosh uh, and the Greek word agios, which uh, means holy in English. The primary meaning of the Hebrew word is what is important because the Torah takes precedent uh, over the Greek and the Latin and the English when it comes to a biblical worldview. This word kodesh means to be separate and distinct and dedicated to a specific and exclusive purpose. Not just any purpose, but an exclusive purpose. And that concept is found throughout the scriptures. So that which is holy and people and things and uh, God uh, and land can all be holy. So uh, that which is holy is set apart with dedication to the Lord only. And this begins in our scriptures uh, with the Sabbath, uh, with us uh, today uh, meeting on Shabbat. Uh, Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, a familiar passage that really should be the end of Genesis chapter 1. They put the chapters kind of in the wrong spot. Uh, The last three verses of what should be Genesis 1 is Genesis 2, 1 through 3, so we'll read those. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. Uh, uh, And the seventh day God completed his work by the seventh day which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Now the word sanctified there is this word for holy. In English Bibles, we use the word sanctification or sanctified because we can't say holyized. Okay? We can't say holy in a verb form. So we can't say he holyized the day. Uh, now, I know some southern preachers and some black preachers who have used it. I like that. Uh, I would like to use the language that way too because sometimes you get the idea. But that's what sanctifying the day is. He made it holy. Um, And in that context, um, it is set apart to God's identity and given to Israel to keep 
in that sense. Now we begin to see a pattern of holiness tied to worship in the scripture. So I'd like you to turn to Exodus 25. We're not going to go to every passage on this, but there are a few that I think need to be understood. Exodus 25, uh, the first nine verses uh, says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. So this is a free will offering. It's uh, a thing saying, God wants, if you, if you are, if your heart prompts you to do this, I know we say, God prompts your heart. That's not a biblical concept. That's a Christian concept. Here, God says, if your heart prompts you, in other words, if you genuinely want to give to me, then uh, you, you shall give. Um, and this is what you shall raise from them, gold and silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet material, fine linen, uh, goat's hair, ram skins, uh, skins dyed red, porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense. Onyx stones, setting stones for the ephod and the breastplate. Now look at verse 8. Let them construct a sanctuary. Again, this word comes from the, the word holy, and it really means let them construct a holy place uh, uh, for me, that I may dwell among them. So he says, I need a place that will be set apart and dedicated to me within the midst of Israel. And that is where I will dwell and where I will meet with them. Uh, and he says, according to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of the, its furniture, so you shall construct it. So he says, you can give to this freely, but when you build it and how you operate it is going to be directly under my instructions. Uh, you don't say to God, I'm going to uh, create holiness the way I think holiness should be. God says, this is Kadosh. I am Kadosh. You shall be Kadosh. Uh, he sets the pattern for holiness. Now let's look at that in a very practical application. Turn to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10, in the first 11 verses, we have a story that this congregation is familiar with. Uh, many congregations are not. They simply don't read these texts. Uh, now, Nadad and Abihu, these are the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Now, what God had told them was, when you come to put the fire on the altar of incense, you will go out to the altar where my holy fire is, and you will take fire from there and you will bring it back and you will put the fire on the, uh, on the uh, incense altar at the time of prayer. And the sons are supposed to do that and they, they apparently said, 
Well, we don't need to go all the way over there and get that. We'll just bring uh, fire. We've got fire here. We'll just use fire. That's what it needs. And we'll do it. Now, they didn't have a little bit that they could flick and do that. But uh, they, they thought it would be more convenient. So the scripture says, And fire came out from the presence of the Lord, that is, from the place of the ark, and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Uh, then Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. So Aaron's sons are killed by the fire of God. Not the fire that they were bringing before the Lord. And Moses says to Aaron, This is what God said. Remember that when you approach me, and the word worship means to approach God, when you approach God, I will be treated as holy, and I will be honored in front of the people. You will not treat me like you treat anyone else. I will be treated uniquely and holy in a way that is respectful to me, and if not, you will, you will pay the consequence. Now, uh, he goes on in this passage and says, uh, Moses called uh, to uh, the sons of Aaron's uh, uncle uh, and said, Come forward and carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to the outside of the camp. Okay. So uh, they came forward and carried them still in their tunics uh, to the outside of the camp as Moses said. Then Moses said to Aaron and to his sons Eleazar and Ithamar, Do not uncover your heads, nor tear your clothes, so that you will not die, that you will become that he will not become wrathful against the congregation, but you shall bewail the burning which the Lord has brought. Uh, but your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, shall bewail the burning which the Lord has brought about you. But you will not go out of the doorway of the tent of meeting, or you will die, for the Lord's anointing oil is upon you. So they did according to the word which uh, Moses said. For the Lord then spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons, when you come to the tent of the meeting, so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute in your generation, so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, and between the clean and the unclean, so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. Now, here's what's going on. Aaron and his sons are in the tabernacle proper, in the courtyard in there, and they have put the anointing oil of God upon them. And now the sons who are approaching with the strange fire, God kills them. And, the, and Moses says to the others, uh, carry them out. And then he says to, to Aaron and the others, don't you go out. You still have the anointing oil on you. You are holy unto the Lord. You cannot go out there and mourn your sons. All of Israel will mourn your sons. You stay here. You have the anointing oil on you. Don't uncover your head. Don't tear your clothing. Your focus is on the Lord, not on what's just happened. So that's an important thing because it's about the issue of worship. Uh, and in Judaism and Christianity, there are actually traditions regarding 
even mourning with regard to the, the Sabbath and uh, other holy days. Now, I want you to understand this oil thing. So go to ex- Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30, verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take for yourself the finest of spices, of flowing myrrh, 500 shekels, of fragrant cinnamon, half as much, 250, and of fragrant cane, 250, of cassia, 500, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and of olive oil, a hen. You shall make a holy anointing oil, a perfume mixture, the work of the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it, you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony. So the furniture and the tabernacle is going to be anointed with this oil, (coughs) this perfume. And the table and its utensils, the lampstand, its utensils, and the altar of incense. The altar of burnt offering, its utensils, the laver and its stand. You shall also consecrate them that they may be holy. Whatever touches them shall be holy. Anything placed on these becomes holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister as priests. You shall speak to the sons of Israel saying, This shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on anyone's body, nor shall you make any like it in the same proportions. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever shall mix any like it, whoever puts on any on a layperson, shall be cut off from his people. God said, I want this unique smell of this anointing oil to be on everything that's mine. And it is not to be used by anyone else. Okay? So they're not supposed to bottle this and say, here's the holy anointing oil. Right? The idea is that the tabernacle and the worship of God and the approaching of God is to be unique and holy and distinct from everything else. It is not supposed to simply be a collection of what's out there brought into God. It is a specific pattern that God that God gives. So what's the principle? The principle is this. That which is holy may not be treated as common. And that which is common cannot be used as holy. And this is specific to the worship of God. Now, there is anointing oils and perfumes that are common... So it's not saying you can't make that outside, but that which is outside is outside, that which is common is common, and that which is holy is holy, and that's the, that's the drawing line that is being done here. Now there's a related term, he said you will make a distinction between what is holy and what is uh, common or profane, and what is clean and unclean. Now I don't have time to go into that quite as much, but let me talk about that quickly. There are related concepts called clean and unclean in the Bible. These are specifically talked about with regard to the animals that can be sacrificed to God. Certain animals can be sacrificed. Certain animals can't be sacrificed. Certain animals can be eaten. 
certain animals cannot be eaten, uh, as you know about the, the kosher laws. So, again, what we have is that which is appropriate and acceptable, and that which is unacceptable and inappropriate. So we have holy, completely dedicated to the Lord, unique, and nothing can be like it. And then we have those things that can be used because they are clean, and those things that cannot be used because they are not clean. They are appropriate and inappropriate. I'm using that somewhat loosely, but I think you get the the idea. I want you to see how this works. Uh, Deuteronomy 14 gives you the whole context of that. I don't have time to go through it now, but that chapter is an important one for you to read. But I want you to look at Exodus chapter 13. In Exodus chapter 13, beginning at verse 11, we are told, Now when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanite, as he swore to you and to your fathers and gives it to you, you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb, first offspring of every beast uh, which you own. The males belong to the Lord. But every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. If you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among you, you shall redeem. So he says to them, the firstborn of all the wombs because of Egypt belong to me. You will give them to me. (coughs) If it is a clean animal, it's to be sacrificed. If it is an unclean animal, like a donkey, then you can exchange it for a lamb, so you're redeeming it, or you must kill it, but it can't be sacrificed to me. And your own firstborn, you will redeem them, that's the redemption of the firstborn, that's still done at dedications of Jews, and I will take the tribe of Levi to be in their stead for uh, for the priest. So, Again, you have this distinction. It all belongs to the Lord. It's dedicated to the Lord. It's holy. But then there's that which is appropriate and not appropriate uh, for a particular use. Now, I bring that up because when we talk about uh, music, we have to ask ourselves, to what extent is music holy? The worship of God is to be by a holy people, we are Kadosh, in a holy place. The tabernacle, by the way, was a temporary place, not a permanent place. The temple was a permanent place. This sanctuary that we have is a temporary one. We have been in other parts of this building, right? And so this this operates a little more like the tabernacle than like the temple, in that sense, but we treat it with the respect due God, and that's why we treat this particular room different than all the other rooms in this in this facility because of that. We don't have a basketball hoop that hangs down here so we can play basketball at other times. We don't break everything out and have a dance class uh, in here. This is set apart in the... This room is holy. Now, the prayer chapel is used 
sometimes in the clean condition, right, as the prayer chapel, and sometimes as other things, uh, when it's being used in a more common use, but not here. And so we have, we have both of those categories being done. So, it's a holy people, a holy place, by a holy means. So, how holy is music? Well, in Romans chapter 12, you know this passage, verse 1 and 2, Scripture says, We are not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we may demonstrate what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable, (coughs) because this is, this giving ourselves holy and acceptable to God, holy and appropriate to God, which is our reasonable service of worship. Now, I want to make a a case that we are not simply setting apart a place and then we do something unique here and then we go out and live any way we want. There's a danger of compartmentalization and it's not about compartmentalization, it's about focus. So there's a passage I'd like you to look at. There's one in Isaiah similar, but I thought we would look at the Jeremiah passage. Jeremiah chapter 7. Now I selected Jeremiah 7 for a particular reason. Jeremiah is asked by God to go down to the temple and give a sermon. This is Jeremiah's temple sermon. So its focus is on the place of worship and it is addressing a problem of compartmentalization that you and I are very familiar with. You've heard the term, maybe I'm assuming, Sunday go to meeting Christians. They're the Christians that are spiritual on Sunday and the rest of the day they live like the world. And somehow they think that's making Sunday holy. Okay, That's missing the point. So in chapter 7 of Jeremiah, verse 8, Jeremiah says, <coughs> speaking for God, Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, offer sacrifices to Baal, walk after other gods, which you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are saved, that we may do all these abominations. That's the amazing grace crowd. Right? We can do any way we want because... God loves us. So we can, we can violate all of the commandments of God and then come to His house and stand there and say, we're delivered or we're saved so that we can do this. <clears throat> so He says, Has this house, which is called by My name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. And of course, Jesus refers to this kind of thing in the temple 
in his ministry as well. This notion that we can play the holy game and live any way we want. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about compartmentalizing our lives into that which is holy and that which is common. I'm talking about when we approach God, we are at the most focus of holiness in terms of what we do. So, when we keep a holy life and then come to God, we worship Him in holiness. When we live a life of disobedience and then come and worship God, we mock Him. And there, then I don't care what music we're using, right? Because to mock God, uh, God is not mocked. Uh, so, let me try to suggest when music is holy. Music is holy when it is used only for God and not for entertainment or other common use. Now, this last week, all over the internet was a video uh, of a, a dance group singing and dancing uh, uh, to be cool and common to lead a worship. And uh, there, there's a divide between people who are more liturgically oriented and people who are more evangelistically oriented as to whether that was good or not. Uh, the reality is that when you are focused on entertaining a crowd to draw a crowd, you are not engaging in worship. Okay, uh, And when you use uh, techniques of sales to do evangelism that work for washing machines and Carl's Jr.'s burgers, you're not being uh, led by the Spirit of God to do that. Uh, but we have reached a point where we become pretty reprobate in that and can't tell the difference, and we will justify anything with the idea, well, if one person got saved or one person came to the Lord, it was worth it. And that's a dangerous mindset. So, <clears throat> this m- means that we should not use prayers and songs that are dedicated for worship as background music or secular purposes. In other words, using holy, holy, holy for the purpose of just background music. Now, if you're doing it to focus on the Lord, that's, that's a holy purpose. But if you're using it to vacuum the, the house and you just need some music playing, you're now beginning to to cross lines in that context. So, it is worship when it is focused on the Lord and the truth of His Word. And it is worship when it is musically appropriate to the mood of the lyrics. Something I'll talk about more later, but a song of joy should have a joyful tune. And a lamentation should express sadness and loss. A majestic song of God's glory should reflect that. We would not use profane or common language to express truth. Although I've been places where people do that. We should also be careful of the musical setting that we use. But that's problematic. Why is that problematic? Well, it's problematic because music is 
uh, somewhat based on cultural differences and generational differences and regional differences, uh, very much the way language is, right? Language has dialects and subdialects and different languages. Music has a similar kind of problem. From the time of Babel, human culture has been different in terms of arts and in terms of, of language. And here we're taking language and art. Should we only sing to God in Hebrew and Greek? There are people who think that. Well, we use English, but we try to use an appropriate use of the, of the English language. So, to what extent do we borrow from the culture for the style of music? And to what extent does a song give you a different sense than it gives me a different sense? And I'm going to talk about that in more detail, but let me say that one of the things we have to keep in mind is the issue of conscience. So I want you to look at Romans chapter 14. Paul here is talking about some of the differences in perception between the believers. Related to holy days and related to what can be eaten and not eaten. And therefore I think it fits into this what's clean and not clean kind of discussion. And what he says is that uh, we don't live to ourselves, we don't die to ourselves, we live to the Lord... And therefore, we should consider our brother who has a weaker conscience. Now, he's, uh, he's not suggesting here that everything is clean. Uh, he's addressing the perception of varying levels of knowledge and understanding. And he's attempting to avoid us condemning each other for not engaging in something that brings a problem to the other one's conscience. He's not saying we can do anything as long as our conscience is not bothered. He's saying we are members one of another and therefore we have to consider each other in that context. Now we, we understand this. You guys, most of you are parents or you're around a lot of little kids and you are a, a little careful about what you say and the way you say it around the kids because of how they might perceive it. Okay? You might perceive it fine. The person you're talking to might perceive it fine. But the children are, are listening. And they might not perceive it the same way. So you are, you are concerned about their conscience. Paul's saying we should be that way with each other in this kind of context as well. This is a greater problem today where postmodern worldview embraces radical individualism and extreme relativism resulting in everyone doing what's right in their own mind, even to the point of individual and personal interpretation of things spiritual and biblical. So, what I'm suggesting is that we have to consider each other's, the impact of each other on the kind of music we use. I'm not talking about seeker-friendly. I'm talking about within the community of faith. So let me give you a couple of examples of that. There was a time in a church when I was the music minister. And uh, it was a church that had 
uh, an offertory. Now, we don't do that, so uh, I'm, I'm assuming you guys know what an offertory hymn is. Offertory hymn is the hymn where they ask you to stand uh, and you sing the, the hymn that you stand so you can get to your wallet. Or <laughs> and then the ushers come forward and then uh, they pray for the offering they're about to receive and then they collect the offering going around the aisles with offering plates. And while that's done, the organist and pianist will play a song called the Offertory. Okay. Now, we had just finished that, and as I sat down, uh, the organist and the pianist played a beautiful rendition of the song Down From His Glory. Do you guys know that song? Beautiful song. When they got to the chorus, I watched three different reactions to the song that was being played. The older saints who knew that song would close their eyes and they heard the song uh, uh, down from his glory. My great creator became my savior and all God's fullness dwelleth in him. I could almost see them mouthing the words. I saw some visitors who didn't know quite what was going on and they were trying to figure out why the pianists and organists were playing O Solo Mia. Because it's the same tune. And the youth group, this will tell you how old this was, in the back were trying to rock to the song because they were hearing Elvis Presley's It's Now or Never. All the same too. So the interpretation of the song depends on the context that you learned it and the words that it triggers into your mind. And that's what Paul's talking about in this context. I'll give you a scary example. I had a Jewish friend in grad school who decided that she might like to uh, experience Christianity um, because of her connection with me, she said, you know, you seem much more reasonable and not what I expected of a Christian from what I've heard in the Jewish community. I think I may go to a, a, a church near my house and, and just experience that. As it turned out, she went to a Lutheran church and she ran out in horror because the music that was playing were hymns from the German tradition of the church. Those songs had been used to march Jews into the camps in Germany. And therefore it wasn't a worship thing. It was a oppressive sound. Okay? Now, did the people playing those songs think that? No. But that's how it was responded to. So... We have to be careful about just, well, I like it. I don't care whether you like it. That's that narcissistic, relativistic, radical individualism that, that, that I'm worried about. So, what I'm suggesting is that we must consider culture and personal experience. Not for what I want, but what is clean to us and to our guests. So, the use of rock and roll... The use of country, the use of opera, 
the use of jazz, the use of polka. Thought I'd throw that one in there. Or classical music styles all have cultural and personal meaning. And so we have to be aware of that. Now, one of the songs that has for most Christians a wonderful fit both of words and music is a mighty fortress is our God. That song written, the words at least, written by Martin Luther were tied by Martin Luther to a beer drinking song of his era. So the people would take their steins and sing dun 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 Okay? Now you don't think now you will. You don't think of that stuff. When we sing the song. Because it's been removed from that context. And given its own context tied to the words that Martin Luther has done. There is a way of sanctifying something from the world that is now used in the church. But we have to be careful of that. And Paul says some people will see that with the knowledge of its worldliness, and that creates the problem. So we have to be careful in what we draw in to uh, make it, because our, we immediately say, well, now that's worship. No, now we've moved into the entertainment and the personal enjoyment framework rather than the focus on God. So... We have to make sure that our children have a rich knowledge of the historical music of the synagogues and the churches, which is going to require uh, serious research and serious thought. Our worship, and particularly our music, must be holy and clean. And we must be holy and clean. Holy being more rigid, less wiggle room. And clean and unclean being more situational in some context. So holy has to have the priority. But I want us to think about that, and I'm hoping in the next uh, message for us to talk more about it. I mean, we'll do Q&A now, but I want us to be able to talk more about that uh, because we need to understand the experiences and the backgrounds and the understandings that each of us have. There are people that have a, a Gaither background and there are people who have a gospel background. There are people who have a Middle Ages background with regard to what's holy music. And we need to think about it for ourselves and for our congregation and then for our church as well. So uh, the idea of loving one another includes the way we use music in, in worship. Now, I am thrilled that the children really light up whenever we do the more messianic and Hebrew songs. But I also love that they are starting to sing out with the the old traditional hymns. It tells me that we're beginning to give them that foundation. And when, when they come and hear that, the tabernacle 
smelled like God. It felt like God. It sounded like God. It, it was an experience of God. I want that here in what we do. Not an experience of the world that gets compared, but an experience of holiness as they approach the holy God so that he is treated as holy by them and honored by all of the people. And so I'm hoping that we will uh, be able to uh, expand that as we develop uh, the Disciple Center liturgy further. So let's pray.